it's become a talismanic and uh, ident identity issue in the sense that uh, it's cost us a lot um, to hold this position. Uh, and at one level, the more it costs you, the more you dig your heels in. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Joining me is Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen, who is the rector at St. Mark's Darling Point in Sydney. He's been a lecturer in theology at Moore Theological College. He's an Anglican, in case that wasn't obvious. He's the author of a number of books, and I'll just mention a couple. They include Reformation Anglican Worship, Experiencing Grace, Experiencing Gratitude, Theological Anthropology and the Great Literary Genres, and a book that I just finished reading this morning before we record this, which I thought was excellent, Sydney Anglicanism, an Apology. And that book is quite germane to the conversation we are about to have, although that'll probably be obvious from the title I give this episode of The Political Animals. And he's also a co-host with Megan Powell Dutois of the With All Due Respect podcast, which you should check out if you haven't already. With that done, Michael, it's a warm welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Okay, so we're going to dive into this topic of evangelical Anglicans. And really, for two Australians uh, who come out of this milieu, if I could put it that way, <laughs> really we have to start with the Diocese of Sydney, which looms large in our religious culture, even our culture. Yes, I noticed you almost said wombs large there, and I think that's kind of appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the only, uh, it's the only city and denomination which, in conjunction, just sort of convey all kinds of meaning and elicit all kinds of reactions, both uh, positive and negative. But before I throw the ball to Michael and try to make him do most of the legwork here, given he is a sort of well and truly inside the diocese that we're going to begin our conversation with, for the sake of transparency, I do feel like I should say something about my background, which some listeners will be familiar with, because I, I'm i not coming at this as a complete outsider, because my life began in the tribe of Sydney Anglicanism. Uh, my father is an ordained Anglican minister from that diocese originally, and I spent much of my childhood in Sydney around the orbit of Moore College because my father was a lecturer there when Michael's father was the principal throughout the 80s. But I left the diocese with my family in 1992 when I was almost 16 and my father took on the job of principal of Ridley College, which is the Evangelical Anglican Theological College down in Melbourne, although there are some differences between those two institutions which might come out. And so although I began my life in Sydney Anglicanism, I haven't actually lived in Sydney since 92. So I have been a bit distant and really an onlooker from afar. But it's by way of saying that my entire sort of theological and Christian formation was in uh, within uh, evangelical Anglicanism originally in Sydney and then Melbourne. Michael, I think you've... With, Aside from some study in Oxford, you've sort of you really are a son of Sydney Anglicanism and have been. Yes, I mean literally. So, uh, as you said, my father was the uh, principal of uh, Moore Theological College, but also 
then became the Archbishop of Sydney, and uh, I should d- disclose that, of course, up front, but also my uncle was quite uh, prominent. It was the Dean of um, Sydney for a time, um, but also um, ran a very prominent ministry at the New South Wales University campus, which uh, has been very influential in Sydney Anglicanism and in Australian Anglicanism, and also just in evangelicalism, I would say. Yeah, you probably have the most famous Sydney Anglican surname of Notorious. Let's say Notorious. Notorious. The Notorious <laughs> Jensen. <laughs> yes. No worries. Okay, enough about uh, family. Let's dive straight into this topic, and we are going to start with Sydney, like I, I said. And it kind of feels weird to even do this because everyone has a view on Sydney Anglicans, including many non-Anglicans. <laughs> but yes. On one side, Catholics, but also, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, you name it, probably because you've offended every uh, part of the Christian church in Australia at some point in time. Uh, so paint us a picture, Michael, from the inside. What is Sydney Anglicanism? What are its distinctive defining marks or characteristics? And how did yeah. it become this thing, Sydney Anglicanism. How did it become this thing? Yes. I mean, as always with these things, it's an interesting combination of place and time as well as uh, convictions. And so um, I would say we need to go back to the the rise of the evangelical movement in the 18th century um, and uh, the, the, the prominence uh, amongst the first uh, chaplains to the colony of New South Wales of evangelicals. And so when uh, as it happened, uh, Australia was um, was colonised. Uh, the evangelical movement were the ones who sent out chaplains to the colony, uh, and those col- those uh, the evangelical movement was uh, distinct distinct in a number of ways. Of course, it was uh, not a primarily a churchy movement, if you see what I mean. It was trans denominational always. Um, so it was a lot of collaboration collaboration. Uh, across denominations, invitations to Methodists and Baptists to come, interestingly, uh, on the basis of a common shared um, gospel. And so uh, the the first evangelical ministers to the colony, uh, people like Richard Johnson and Samuel Marsden, uh, were, were really interested in the evangelization uh, and the Christianization of the colony. So uh, they had a social vision, but they also had a uh, spiritual, a very, very spiritual vision, which involved preaching, conversion. Uh, just like Wesley and Whitfield, conversion and preaching of the gospel. Um, now, this is a very tough place to be a Christian because Sydney is a brutal kind of town. It's a convict colony after all. Um, I mean, that's true of most cities in Australia, except for our, our beloved brethren over in Adelaide who do think they're better than the rest of us because they're free settlers. But it was a brutal town to be a uh, to be a clergyman and to to run a church in, and so uh, you needed to be tough. Uh, not only were most of your um, most of your congregation either convicts or soldiers, uh, it was the case that uh, the Irish contingent was very large in the colony in the early days, and so you needed to combat a very strong. Catholicism, uh, sometimes almost a revolutionary Irish Catholicism. And so in the 19th century, a number of Church of Ireland, that is Protestant Irish, and I don't mean Northern Irish, I mean Irish, that Northern Ireland didn't exist in those days, uh, clergy were brought out in order to staff the the uh, the, the Sydney, the Sydney um, parishes. And so uh, they, they were tough. They knew, <laughs> they knew, you know, they were used to sectarian uh, sectarian debates, uh, as well as having a again a kind of a strong view in the um, in the need for conversion, uh, and also a kind of low church 
uh, polity. So uh, the character of the diocese was shaped by the toughness of the town and also by this influx of Irish, Protestant Irish clergy in the 19th century. Um, and also various uh, various uh, uh, parts of the evangelical movement that came through, again, through the 19th century, um, the eschatology of the 19th century, of evangelicals in the 19th century, which, uh, again, sort of focused less on uh, social engagement and this-worldly achievements for the church, this-worldly um, activities, and more on, again, winning souls for Christ. And uh, that's that's very much shaped what we have. Um, now, at the same time, the other diocese of the uh, Anglican Church um, in, in Australia were settled at different times when the Anglo-Catholic movement was in the ascendancy. And so there was a difference as the national church started to come together uh, there was a difference in flavour and tone between these two, between these um, two streams in Anglicanism. Now, these uh, these parts of Anglicanism have been in tension in the National Church of England for for many many decades. Um, in fact, you could probably say there are three streams, but we'll keep it at two for now. Um, and that is the uh, the more high church movement. Uh, picked up in the 1830s with Anglo-Catholicism and then the evangelical movement, which was very strong in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, these, these were perpetually at war in 19th century uh, Church of England. In Australia, it took on a, a, the form of di- a, a diocesan struggle so that Sydney, and unusually in the Anglican world, became a diocese that was characterised by evangelicalism. In most places in the Anglican world, uh, in the I, I should say the 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 uh, developed Anglican world, uh, evangelicals are strong, but they don't run dioceses. They tend to be not part of the uh, hierarchy. But that was different here in Sydney, and so that meant that uh, evangelicals had some say in the running of uh, their church and in the in in the kind of the the. Uh, the building up of their church, the property, the uh, training of clergy, and so and so on. I'd say at the centre of this as well is the is this is the growth of more college. You've got to remember back in the nineteenth century, hardly any clergy trained at theological colleges. There were no such thing. In fact, uh, clergy in the Church of England went to Oxford and Cambridge. Theological colleges only start relatively late. More College is started in the 18, I think it's even as early as the 1860s. I haven't got the dates here. But that's before many of the evangelical uh, or many of the Anglican uh, theological colleges in England. Uh, they're younger than More Colleges. But the bishops in Australia realised they needed locally trained clergy. And so they they uh, they founded More College. And uh, that's been at the heart of um, more of uh, Sydney Diocese ever since, a kind of very strong centre of training, a very strong belief that you needed well-trained clergy uh, and, and a, a clergy that were trained in the same way to run your diocese. So that's really interesting, Michael, because it just brings, draws out how significant, like you began, the time and place was. And in a strange way, it's it's like a quirk of the history of the Church of England that this diocese, because of it, the the era and the unique circumstances of its settlement with the penal colony and the early foundation or establishment of a theological college, which again then can really uh, imprint on the diocese a certain theological character or, or flavour, 
explains this very unique uh, situation. And although I shouldn't do this, I want to jump to something we were going to touch on later, but I have to ask this because I, I was wondering this before we even came into the conversation, but you kind of hinted that whilst the Sydney Diocese was unique when it was founded and throughout much of its uh, life as a kind of distinctively evangelical diocese right up to the archbishop, whereas, and that was certainly one of the differences when my family moved to Melbourne. Of course, there are evangelical Anglicans in Melbourne and they've got their own theological college, but that's not the only Anglican theological college in Melbourne because it's a mixed diocese. And so so if you want to be an evangelical, you go to Ridley. If you're more in the Anglo-Catholic or liberal tradition, you go to the other one, the name of which escapes me. Trinity. There are different parishes and the Trinity, that's the one, and which I think is just down the road, actually. And the evangelicals don't sort of control the synod and necessarily the, the sort of senior appointments. But this is all by way of getting to the question of today, is the Sydney Diocese still unique globally in um, the Anglican communion? Or are there other dioceses like this, perhaps in Africa or elsewhere, that are kind of well, that's, similar? Well, that's a great question. And I would argue, because... Uh, to its detractors, it's painted as being weird and uh, an outlier, and in in some ways it is. Okay, so I'll admit to that. There's some. I mean, I know I know how weird from the inside, but um, because of the impact of the missionary movement um, and the growth of the church in Africa uh, and in and in Southeast Asia, and that this has occurred since the 1970s and 80s. So this is relatively new. The the the, the rapid growth of those those uh, Anglican churches. The um the, uh, the 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 predominance of the evangelical view of uh, or the evangelical um, type of Anglicanism is, uh, is is far greater. Now I would say, of course, there are cultural differences, uh, and so in Africa, you you will of course uh, see much more liturgical uh, a much more liturgical flavour of Anglicanism than you would in the Diocese of Sydney. But in terms of convictions and the the, the belief that people need to be converted. Um, they need to hear the gospel and be transformed. Um, that kind of connection on the authority of scripture, those sorts of convictions are very much the dominant ones in global Anglicanism. Yeah. So, um, and, and so that's, that's been interesting because Sydney has sort of um, carried that torch, but uh, now discovered, I think that in, in, um, in, in the contemporary world, it is less of an outlier than it, uh, than it used to be. Than it was at one time. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And I and I, I did jump ahead and we'll yes. return to that. But there are some other elements within the Sydney Diocese that I think we need to unpack. Now, one of the things that comes out in your your book, and it's re- really interesting to to sort of take this tour of, if you like, controversies, which have created so much angst and contest, not only within the the Anglican Church of Australia, which has a very, um, you know, for the uninitiated, my understanding is, and this comes out in, I think, the debate, there's a lot of local autonomy at the diocesan level. And I think you even have a really nice little turn of phrase, which I probably should have jotted down, but it's, you sort of, you articulate that it's not really a national church. That's a kind of misleading term. It's a kind of, uh, Oh, I can't word? remember. Elusive, Elusive. <laughs> this is not your words, but it, it's you've got to think of it as separate dioceses which come together and try and 
create some kind of national architecture, but really they, they're autonomous yeah, it's, churches. It's a national church. It's certainly very different to how it is or how it seems to be in England, where uh, having lived in England for a while, the dioceses really don't um, feature in people's consciousness um, that much. It's really about the national church and um, partly distance is is the is the reason for that. It just isn't that far between the diocese of London and the diocese of Oxford. So the, the consciousness of being part of a diocese isn't is as strong as it is here, where we have our major cities so far apart. But there's some crucial things that happen to make this so. And um, in particular, this came out in the sort of uh, post-war period where you had a, a number of very dominant, crucial figures who uh, provided... Um, uh, the intellectual intellectual heft for what we have in Sydney Anglicanism now. Uh, they are in particular Donald Robinson and Broughton Knox, contrasting figures in many ways. Um, uh, and uh, but but they they together really provided the 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 ecclesial uh, and theological shape of um, Sydney Anglicanism. And as the National Church was forming as a national church and getting its constitution together, which didn't happen until 1961. Uh, they were crucial in making sure that this national church was actually a, a, a federation rather than a top-down thing where you might have a uh, – the primate is really uh, a, an honorary role, uh, more of a governor general uh, in Australian terms than he, than he is or she is a, a kind of real – like the Archbishop of Canterbury, a kind of real dominant figure with, with any authority whatsoever. And there is enormous autonomy uh, amongst between the dioceses, and so um, Sydney was very careful to keep that. And it's partly because of two, two things. One is it wanted to assert the authority of Scripture. And you'll see in the Constitution of uh, the National Church, um, there's a place for the Thirty Nine Articles and uh, the Holy Scriptures in a way that isn't true in other Anglican places and other places in the Anglican world, where uh, there was a much more broad church or liberal. Uh, framing of Ang- Anglican constitutions, uh, seeing the 39 Articles, so, so that great document of the Reformation, as something that was merely of historical interest only. Whereas for the uh, National Church, Sydney insisted that this framing of Reformation doctrine be the ch- doctrine of our National Church, uh, and particularly with its references to the authority of Scripture. The other thing is the view of the Church. And Knox and Robinson... Uh, they differed in their view of the church, actually, but together they brought up a, a, a doctrine of the church which focused around the, lo- the local church as primary. And by local, they didn't mean, as some as say, the uh, the Orthodox, um, capital O Orthodox churches mean where the bishop is. They mean the congregation, and so they they were insistent that the Anglican Church was a denomination, a fellowship of churches. Um, rather than the church per se. Uh, and so the action is in the parish for them when Christians meet. Um, it's very non-hierarchical and it's very uh, it's lay-focused. And so uh, this is in contrast to a much more Catholic view of the church, which dominates in many other Anglican uh, Anglican. Um, churches across the world. So you've got a, a doctrine of scripture, a very high doctrine of scripture, a very uh, local doctrine of the church. And these are absolutely crucial to Sydney Anglicanism. And they have shaped the national church 
of uh, the National Anglican Church of Australia, which is why we're often in gridlock, by the way. <laughs> I've got to say, uh, we don't just easily resolve our differences because we allow each other the freedom uh, to disagree up to a point. Yeah, it almost seems guaranteed for conflict. But let's come back to that yeah. because I did mention this issue of controversies and, and I think it would be worth just going into a couple of them. Uh, some of them are kind of eccentric from one point of view. I think there's there's been some debate about the chasuble, for example, that, that you recount in your book, but that that's probably going back a little way. I suppose the Well, it's kind of, I mean, it is going back. Well, that's kind of eccentric, but you've got to remember how many innovations occurred in the 19th century. The the trick with those innovations, on the Anglo-Catholic end, the trick with those innovations is they were innovations, but they looked traditional. So when Sydney resisted them, (laughs) like the mitre, no Anglican bishop wears a mitre until about 1911. Um, uh, But but you you wouldn't think that because it looks ancient. So yeah. it, resisting that looks like you're um, being being kind of radical, whereas actually you're being traditional. You're being really traditional in the sense of your your um, in continuity with uh, to, with Anglicanism of the Reformation. Yeah, this is one thing that came out from your book and that I've experienced with my own eyes. And I should say that uh, I don't know about your experience, Michael, but one of the weird things as I reflect back on my childhood is. I honestly don't think I was even aware of the existence of Anglo-Catholicism until my late 30s, and I certainly had never been to an Anglo-Catholic church service until my late 30s. So it was a kind of culture shock to really experience firsthand that the sort of church of my and culture of my childhood right into early adulthood, and I, uh, I sort of had you- a conversion experience within... Anglican evangelical circles. So you that didn't. Was... You didn't talk to the the Anglo Catholic teachers that were at the school that we both went to, uh, who used to look at me and say they were the great friends. They were great, great people, and they'd, yeah. they'd look at me and say, "Ah, Jensen, are you becoming one of those happy clappies?" They'd say, and I got taken oh, to yeah. Christchurch St Lawrence and to St James King Street by um, by uh, teachers at my school actually <laughs> in Sydney, which are the two uh, famous Anglo Catholic churches in Sydney. Yeah, and I've heard that they they, they put the Catholic into Anglo-Catholic. Like oh, they really the do. Uber, Uber. And, but here's the funny thing, Michael. I, I to my shock, only, only learnt about that maybe five or six years ago. I just had no idea. And admittedly, I'd left Sydney when I was sort of only 15. So if I had a stage, who knows, maybe I would have ended up an Anglican minister like you and, and gone down the um, – because there is something very hereditary about uh, <laughs> Sydney, Sydney Anglicans. But I, it stems from that, that strong sense of I – identity. So I take your point on the chasuble, which is interesting. And I, and I do know, having done some reading into the history of Anglo-Catholicism, that you know, it very much is a 19th century movement trying to reclaim some Catholic elements that had long yeah. disappeared in the Church of England. But, but Anglican clergy in the Diocese of Sydney have to sign an undertaking that they will not wear the chasuble. So, oh really? That's, yes. That's... So I have to do. I had to do that. I presume that's still the same. So... Well, in, in a way, that that's isn't that. See, to me, at one level, that that's kind of extraordinary. But then it's not if you understand something of the culture of Sydney, which is, it seems to me, very concerned with orthodoxy to the point of almost anxiety, <laughs> and just yeah. really going the extra mile to ensure that its people do not. Put one toe over the uh, whatever the line well, is. Well, I mean, 
Maybe, but you've got to remember, again, the 19th century, that was uh, this was kind of standard stuff in the Church of England. There were many famous cases, there were famous law cases about this. Um, there was, see, what happened with evangelicals, and I think this is perhaps a besetting sin of, of, uh, of, uh, of Sydney still, uh, is that we assumed that law, that church law, would protect um, the evangelical gospel, the, the, the Protestant, the Reformation gospel. And so when innovations took place in the 19th century, um, the evangelicals often took uh, Anglo-Catholics to court um, and failed again and again and again. This has actually happened in Australia in a couple of situations where um, people have tried to say, look, this is our agreement as a, as a national church, this is our constitution. Um, when it's broken um, by, uh, by innovators, uh, well, I want to test that. Uh, but it turns out that secular courts don't much like intervening in, in um, church affairs. Um, this happened actually around the ordination of women in the early 90s when um, some uh, dioceses were just so frustrated by a general synod that they decided to go ahead anyway. So this happened at Canberra Golden Diocese. And um, some people got together and, and uh, uh, enforced an injunction, which stopped it temporarily. But, of course, then the court doesn't want to decide. But, you see... This is this is this has always been the um, the, uh, the the the, tr- the faith that uh, evangelicals, including Sydney evangelicals, have had that that by agreeing to doctrines, by agreeing to constitutions, people will actually act in keeping with those. And I, I think it's a mis- it's mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, your opponents claim that you're also guilty of innovation when it comes to ecclesiology to do again with an issue that might look a bit quixotic to the outsider over so-called lay presidency or I understand in the language of Sydney, uh, lay administration yes. of, I was going to say the Lord's Supper, but it was always called communion when I was growing up in, in uh, Sydney. A term that, that uh, it's, I think the Anglo-Catholics prefer the term the Eucharist, but uh, yeah. oh, you, you know, these two parts of the church speak a completely different idiom as I came to learn once I became more acquainted with, yeah. with the Anglo-Catholic side and realize I didn't speak the, the dialect. Now, you mount a defense in your book. It is called an apology, after all. This is Sydney Anglicanism. So, uh, I mean, briefly, what, what is this kind of controversy? Well, What's I should say um, it's, it's a it's – a, my, my argument is it's entirely fine to have lay – before I explain it, it's entirely fine to have lay presidency, but we shouldn't do it. So, um, so that's my, uh, and for because there's a mistake in evangel in the Sydney evangelical way of thinking between doctrine and church order issues. I think, um, of course. So, what what is lay administration? It's it's meant to be uh, the idea that um, that a, a qualified lay person could celebrate the Eucharist or the, the Lord's Supper. That uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says a an ordained person should do that. Uh, in fact, we are trying to show by this move, I think, that the uh, the priesthood, what Anglicans call the priesthood, is not priesthood in the Catholic sense, but priesthood in the sense of pre- the pres- presbyter, a presbyteral sense, the the elder, and that the the function is not sacerdotal, chiefly or or, or sacramental, chiefly, but uh, but it's it's a teaching and leadership and pastoral role. Uh, so it's appropriate, of course, for um, lay people to preach. So therefore, it should be appropriate for lay people to celebrate the Eucharist, the, the sacrament. Now, I I agree in theory, uh, and I agree partly because I agree that there are other churches. So I don't just believe that, that that's the only, that 
you know, I believe that there are other churches which do practice lay presidency, lay administration, and I think it's a valid sacrament. So I think Baptist sacraments are valid sacraments, even though I'm not a Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I have to, in principle, agree. But I think churches choose their church order and they choose them for particular reasons. And I don't think it's worth pursuing. I myself think it's not worth pursuing. So uh, that's what actually happened in the Sydney Diocese is um, there was a push for lay administration, but it never actually got through. So I think we have um, diaconal administration, uh, which uh, I mean, I could understand, but I could could explain, I should say, but your listeners will be switching off in droves, um, but which other dioceses don't. But we don't have lay administration, at least not officially. So, uh, and I don't permit diaconal administration either in my parish. I would agree that we have these we have these church orders for a reason, for a function, and we we keep them up for the sake of good order. And uh, particularly when we're talking about fellowship with dioceses around the world, in whom we can have a, 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 a we can do a lot of good work together. To um, and, and it, this seems to be not worth. It's not worth it, I keep saying to people around here. Well, that, that kind of accords with my view because I find these disputes intellectually interesting because they point to clashing, different and clashing conceptions of what the, the church is. So that when, when you talk about these two churches within one, notwithstanding the, the Sydney view of the multiple churches, congregations, etc., in a funny way, they really are two different churches because if you follow the ecclesiology, and, and I'm sure this would apply too to evangelicals in Melbourne and Adelaide and, and wherever else, which which I imagine on the ecclesiological type stuff is probably similar to the the Sydney. Then if you if you read these two contrasting conceptions, <laughs> you are presented with two different churches and the clash manifests sometimes in what looks like strange uh, debates that, that don't seem worth it, but ultimately it's be, because you've got these these two different conceptions. Rubbing, rubbing yeah, they're like the Vietnam War. You know, it's the, the Vietnam War is not about Vietnam ultimately, um, yeah. which is not a good example because it was such a bad war. Uh, well, maybe it is a good example for that. that, well, that is, is your war a good one? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean it. Just it's it's they're really about underlying, and I think I think I think it's good to actually refer to those underlying. And differing principles, and perhaps talk about them rather than about the uh, emotion, the emotive issues that um, that are the ones that we're faced with. But in churches, it's those emotive issues that deal with that actually deal with human beings that we find they grip us. Um, I think people in Sydney wanted to move to lay administration partly to show that they weren't being simply conservative, that they were trying to be biblical. So, uh, and particularly over the ordination of women. Um, they'd been con- accused of simply being just reactionary and they wanted to show, no, 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 actually in terms of liturgy and in terms of other things, we're prepared to be as innovative. In fact, we're more innovative than um, than uh, our Anglo-Catholic um, friends. So it, it had context there. Now, you mentioned women a couple of times. This is obviously the, of all the issues, controversies, defining marks and something that even probably separates you to some extent from the evangelical Anglicans in other dioceses in Australia. I'm not really familiar enough with what's going on in the UK and and elsewhere. It's this issue of the ordination of women, women in leadership, women teaching, women having heading a church. There are a lot of subtleties to the to the argument. The 
a lot of people will be familiar with this, and obviously this this doctrinal position is, I imagine, getting more and more difficult to defend, not because of the theological warrants, but in our the culture has really moved in a different direction. And so this is one of those issues where Sydney, the Sydney Anglican Diocese, I think uniquely in Australia, as you recount in your book, it's a lot of secular press attention. And this is one of the, the issues that journalists love to sort of uh, ask pointed questions about why you're so retrograde and chauvinist and sexist and why you don't come up to the, the modern times. So I, I mean, we could go through the theological arguments and you're welcome to do that. I kind of want to understand it more. Yeah, I want to understand it sociologically because I, I kind of wonder... A, what is at stake for for Sydney? Because there are there is an evangelical argument for the ordination of women, which again we don't need to go into. Which some people hold in other dioceses. I believe some people in Sydney actually hold it, but they they have to sign up to the um, sort of position of the the diocese. But I wonder to what extent a has this become a sort of badge of identity that is tied up in this kind of fight against secularism. You know, the more you get sort of hammered, the more you dig your heels in. What would it do to Sydney if it changed its position on this? Do you think uh-huh. it would ever change its position? I understand, I glean from your book and other sources, that it, it still has a lot of support. It's not It's not like a, um, my impression is it's not a couple of senior clergy imposing a view and that even a lot of Sydney Anglican women uh, support this complementarian view. Well, this is my book is uh, ten years old, so things may have changed, and I, I I think there's been a bit of a cultural shift generally uh, in terms of since 2018 or so. So uh, it would be interesting to test it now. I think things may have changed. Also, um, we've had some interesting discussions about domestic violence uh, in the church and how. Complementarian teachings have not helped or have been misused in that. So I wonder. I'd be interested to know. However, um, the Sorry, I, Michael, can I just jump in? Do Do you mean are you are you hinting at the fact that the support level for the complementarian view may have shifted somewhat? It may the- have shifted. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So since my oh, book was yeah. written, um, uh, if you just talk to the Anglicans on the street or in the pews, I wonder if there'd be things may have shifted somewhat. However, I don't think politically, I don't think at the level of uh, what the Synod may do, there's any chance of there being a change in the next 20 years. I can't see it. Um, if I were, someone actually came and asked me, um, uh, I'm in favour of the ordination of women, what should I do uh, in Sydney to get it up? And I said, well, I think it's a 20-year project um, at least uh, because Sydney has not wanted to talk about it since 2006. It's just even not even been brought up. So, um, it, it and partly, uh, you have to argue on evangelical terms. And this is this tells you what's at stake here. So, what's at stake uh, as far as Sydney evangelicals are concerned is um, they think it's what they they are convinced this is what Scripture teaches. Uh, and the best way to put into practice what Scripture teaches. Now, I know evangelical Anglicans and others make arguments from Scripture too. And I respect that, but in the first uh, decades of the debate, it was often scripture versus people using other uh, sources other than scripture. So uh, it was very hard to make it. There weren't very many evangelical cases being made for the ordination of women. They were non-evangelical cases mostly. 
uh, liberal and progressive or Catholic cases. So um, it, it really comes out of that conviction about, about Scripture. But also, uh, as you rightly say, it's become a talismanic and uh, ident- identity issue in the sense that uh, it's cost us a lot um, to hold this position. Uh, and at one level, the more it costs you, the more you dig your heels in, the more it becomes something that we've we've all worn the opprobrium of our society together. Um, now, that's both good and bad. I think that uh, doesn't help you do helpful self-analysis and it does lead to the kind of calcification of your views. You can you can uh, become rusted on and not actually go back to the scriptures um, and look at them again in a fresh. And also, you can you, you can it, it can become sloppy. Uh, so I think that's the the real danger for a for a view that we don't revisit um, because we feel it's just talismanic, um, and we don't actually put the intellectual effort in uh, to answer the very good questions being asked by biblical Anglicans who have decided on a different view, uh, you know, on a more egalitarian view. So that's where it is. Um, I think we could, you know, I think, again, um, our claim always was that um, at the same time we were going to support the ministry of to and for by women. And I think we did some great work, but uh, that, I I think that's fallen off. And I think there's, um, not a great career path for women in ministry in the city diocese at the moment, and uh, we ordained a lot of women to the diaconate in the first in the first decades. But um, but but that's again that's fallen off somewhat. Um, I should also say uh, there's there's a difference between the the diocesan what's that, what the diocesan view the synodical view and what many in the culture might might uh, like the cultural view. So that um, you might find that people. The culture of Sydney Anglicanism, many leaders, uh, many prominent loud voices might be further to the right, as it were, more conservative than the diocesan view. So the diocesan view is that, for instance, women are permitted to preach uh, in churches, and they do in many, many churches, and uh, including mine. But in terms of the, the, the diocesan culture and what many of the leadership would hold, that wouldn't be the view. The view would be uh, not only against ordination, but against women preaching. So, um, but it's worth reminding, it's worth just saying there is a distinction between that. I, I think I'm a Sydney Anglican complementarian, uh, but I certainly allow women to preach. And I, I don't think it's as important an issue as others would think. Which is useful clarification of what actually is happening on the ground, because I think the opponents of Sydney Anglicanism, and particularly those that oppose the diocese on this issue, which is obviously a flashpoint, particularly for for some women in the Anglican Church, uh, you know they they would see the loudest, those, those sort of harder voices, for want of a better term, as representative of the diocese, because uh, you know I found it surprising having followed the debate from afar to learn just how many female deacons there are in the church and to hear things like you just said that, uh, you know, you get the impression that that no woman can even speak in some of these Sydney Anglican churches and yet here they are preaching in oh, absolutely, <laughs> in absolutely. your church and others. You know? yeah. So the it's one of those, like a lot of polarised issues, the facts, you know, become yeah. very vague I would and say misleading. There are some places where uh, I think there's some very extreme views held, but there are some people who who uh, I think restrict, I, I think become quite pharisaical in my view. I, I think 
ridiculously um, restrictive. Um, but that's certainly not the culture at large or, or, the, or the representative of the whole. So speaking of controversial topics, which we have been for a while, the final one I, I wanted to hear your views on is this political question. And this is fascinating to me because it's it operates at a number of different levels. There's the the internal politics of the diocese, which can be quite a brutal sport to an outsider, particularly when it comes to like archiepiscopal uh, elections and the like. It kind of does feel like a sometimes like a, a sort of secular political campaign with parties and factions and uh, you no know, well, campaigning. Just, just like uh, the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then there are there are those who claim, and I only say claim not because I, I doubt it. It's just I've, I've never even been to a local synod, let alone the, the national one. But there are those who say Sydney plays a pretty tough at the national church as well, and and that it's part 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 of this is to do with organisational capacity. I gather it just seems like Sydney has is actually very good politically at sort of uh, lining up. It's counting the votes, as we would say in the secular world and then finally there's the 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 diocese getting involved in secular political issues and certainly the journalistic coverage of the diocese kind of treats it like a political player a nefarious and backward and uh, reactionary and problematic one uh no doubt generally with the way journalism has gone these days, but the the diocese has, for example, just to think of a recent example, it gave some sum of money. I can't for the life of me remember what a million it was. dollars. No, was it a million dollars? A million okay, dollars that was higher than I remember. Okay, so that that's a substantial amount to the no case in the same sex marriage plebiscite, and I know that elicited some uh, different views, including from some who support the diocese, just about this idea of where the boundary is between getting involved in secular political debates to the extent that you want to paint that as secular. So there's those three levels. There's this sort of the tough internal politics, there's the tough national church politics, and then there's politics per se in this sort of Australian market. Give us a perspective on okay. <laughs> all that in five um, minutes. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, uh, Sydney is political. Uh, Sydney is a political city. Um, uh but uh, it's also been synodically governed, and uh, this is an interesting thing that happened in the Anglican Church. I think it happened in the colonies before it happened in the Church of England, uh, because in the Church of England, it was the Parliament and the bishops who just told everyone what to do. It was aristocratic. Uh, what we have in the colonies is we have democracy, and democracy is uh, adversarial, and uh, it involves parties, and it involves, um, you know, not everyone can be on top of every debate. Um, so it does involve um, the kind of messy business of, um, of, of voting and having divisions, arguing about issues. And I don't want to be, I, I think there's a sort of docetism uh, to quote a, use a theological heresy about this. Sometimes a sort of, um, we can't, you know, uh, that politics is sort of this messy physical stuff that Christians shouldn't be involved in. I don't think that's the, I think, uh, you know, this is actually, a process that we we have a process for the debating of issues so that we don't use passive aggression and bullying that's the point uh, now i don't think we always do that very well i think um the problem is when you forget to actually debate ideas and what you do instead is you just have who's uh 
who's a loyal person. So you have in-groups and out-groups. We're as guilty as that as anyone. Um, it's the inner ring that C.S. Lewis wrote about, I think, is an essay that we should uh, send to more college and everyone should read because this happens. I'm sad to say um, it happens. And I think when that happens, pardon me, we, um, we resort to clubbishness and rather than real thought or noticing the integrity of people. And uh, I've seen it happen that uh, people have no integrity whatsoever or people have been discovered to be quite <laughs> quite, uh, quite not fit to hold office, have got through um, because they voted the right way, you know, because they line up the right way. And that's where we must not look like the world when it comes to internal church politics. But um, uh, I think also our detractors uh, see us that way because uh, they're not used to evangelicals playing politics well. Because what happens is in most uh, jurisdictions, um, uh, uh, people of different uh, church traditions are the ones who climb the ecclesiastical greasy pole, who um, sneer at those in other camps and who dominate. And so, um, And so they're not used to it. Uh, I'd have to say, and uh, so that they don't like that. The other thing is that, um, uh, that there's a complaint that we have a gerrymander when, in fact, uh, in the national church, which is not true, uh, we do have the single biggest group because we are the single largest church by clergy and by um, church attendance by far. And, in fact, uh, I believe, in fact, we actually have less by uh, uh, we have less numbers actually. I mean, uh, there can be some very small rural dioceses with hardly anyone in them, and they get uh, way beyond their proportion of um, of voters. So, and there's only one bishop in the in for each diocese. So, I don't think that really stacks up as a criticism. But the other thing to talk about is actually politics and the, the church and the world. Politics in the world, and Sydney's kind of strangely it's, it's strange sort of situation on this one because. Um, for most people, evangelism is the number one game. But the trouble is if you're an Anglican church, you actually are invited to talk about politics all the time because you, uh, in Anglo-Saxon communities, the Anglican church is the church of the establishment, even though we're not officially. So uh, we have enormous resources. We're an enormous player in the uh, welfare sector and in the education sector and the health sector. And so we, we need to have a view on society. We care for our society. And actually, traditionally, we've been very active in working for the common good and doing work on the ground, uh, seeing people in their time of need. That's been an extraordinary a hidden feature of the work of the Sydney Diocese. And so it's right for us, I think, then, to express a view about um, the uh, the formation of the the political landscape but we've got a heritage of losing almost everything <laughs> so debates about divorce about gambling about alcohol about etc etc we've uh, we've we've stood against the tide uh, decade after decade after decade um, and so we've we've made our views known uh, euthanasia in the last few years and then same-sex marriage was just uh, the latest in the latest in this, um, I argued against, or I wrote a letter of protest about the one million dollars. I thought it was a uh, the one million dollars that the standing committee um, uh, voted. I I thought it was just a bad look. I thought it was it, it was buying us one million dollars of bad will, and I think it has. It's not been forgotten. Uh, even four or five years later, it's. Uh, I mean, even nine hundred ninety nine thousand dollars would have been better. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was uh, in principle wrong because um, the campaigns needed funding and it actually serves democracy for com campaigns to be funded, to be well-funded. Even it serves the winning argument for it to be, for the no case 
to be put uh, put well, and the money doesn't come from nowhere. And I do think uh, my my view was at the time I argued against uh, same sex marriage, although of course I now I recognise that that was a lost that was a lost cause. So uh, now having said all that, I personally uh, think that we we do media very badly. There's a sort of in, uh, deep martyr complex. We sort of enjoy when we get kicked in the paper, and it's actually uh, I, th- I think we we need to get over that. Uh, it's not that we need to um, pander to the world, but for the size of organisation that we are, uh, we need just to handle ourselves better. Uh, the way we do comms, the way we address the public, the kind of cases we choose to um, choose to engage with. I think we need to do more work behind the scenes with politicians rather than to come out up front. For example, uh, there's some legislation about gay conversion bills, uh, a gay conversion that's coming before the New South Wales Parliament um, in the next term. And my view is uh, we shouldn't head on, do that head on, what we should do, because gay conversion in itself is deplorable, uh, gay conversion therapy. Um, but we're concerned that the there will be overreach uh, in the legislation. But I think what we need to do is actually um, negotiate with those who are putting up the um, bill and say, we will support a bill. Wouldn't that be amazing? We will support a bill that protects the right of consenting adults to pray together. Um uh, that doesn't go as far as the Andrews bill. And I, I that would be a much better way of doing things. I think we've got this habit of establishment, this habit of uh, believing we're in Christendom, and we need to change that and realise now we're actually part of the conversation. We have a voice, but it's one of many. We have no right to our voice, and we're perceived by many as being the problem. So you just have to take care with the causes you choose. Um, I think it's been very interesting in New South Wales lately that the gambling issue has come back and now society seems to have turned against this sort of libertarian argument about um, about poker machines and it's turned it's turned right around and uh, that's it there seems to be it seems to be the churches are actually leading a charge for the common good that's being supported by society after 150 years of doing the opposite so that's a really interesting moment to me. I would love to stay on this political topic because it's of particular interest to me. And um, this pivot is not exactly out of uh, politics, but time is short. And I, and I did want to actually get this on the table before we finish. And it is to do with the fallout of the same-sex marriage plebiscite and it became legal in Australia some years ago. I can't remember the exact time frame because everything's such a blur these days. Before covid but- before COVID, yeah, yeah the, old, the old pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but clearly this is an issue that has taken the internal fractiousness of the National Anglican Church, notwithstanding the diocesan model, over the issue of same-sex blessings, which in my view, uh, somewhat recklessly, but perhaps that's designed to be reckless, certain uh, Anglo-Catholic dioceses are, are pushing. I say reckless because they must know this could break the church because it's, it has in other jurisdictions like in North America and Brazil, I understand. I think maybe even in New Zealand, we have had the creation of the 
Diocese of the Southern Cross, which is a kind of non-territorial diocese for uh, evangelical Anglicans or even at the parish level who who's, can't stay with their diocese anymore over this teaching. So I, 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 I wonder, I find myself asking whether this whole same-sex marriage issue is going to be the issue that breaks the Anglican Church in Australia. And I want to ask you, Michael, tricky twofold question and we've only got a few minutes but can and should the sydney anglicans and other evangelicals stick with this church uh well the difference in australia is that the conservatives are in the majority and a growing majority and that's true even in melbourne where um there's a disagreement between anglicans in melbourne and anglicans in sydney over ordination of women for instance and so uh there are growing evangelical uh numbers in Dioceses like Tasmania, uh, even the Diocese of Adelaide. Uh, there are evangelicals in Perth, Armadale. There's a number of different um, places where the, the evangelical numbers. And so I think uh, progressive voices, you know, progressive um, progressives in the church know that they cannot win at General Synod. They will never, uh, you know, it'll take a long time for that to be the case. They simply don't have the church growth. Their statistics, the statistics are against them. Their churches are aging. Uh, average ages of over 70 and what have you. So um, so I think the mistake evangelicals might make is to abandon this particular church and not see that it will fall to them in time. Um, I don't think there will be. There, there, there may be dioceses that uh, go ahead, but we've got to be careful not to then go, well, we're out um, because actually the majority, they, you know, we are the ones funding the, the national church. It's costing us to keep the national church off, afloat. Um, and so I I think it's a more it's it it's it's a less apocalyptic situation for conservative evangelical conservatives on both Anglo Catholic conservatives and evangelical ones than it is in other places. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to leave. Um, I don't want us to leave, but I'm conscious that the um, that these are increasingly these are two different versions of the Christian faith, and I don't think unity should be preserved at, at any cost. So I think it's okay for churches to say, okay, Christians to say, we can't resolve this tension right now, but we um, we can't preserve this tension right now, but we can, uh, we, can we need to walk apart um, because our unity is eschatological anyway, and it's up to the spirit. I can't see how we can, what chemotherapy can minimise this cancer, but um, we we can't hold these two in tension. In fact, we will be much clearer uh, if we walk apart. Now, how to do that and do that in a peaceful way and a way in which resolves all the real estate issues, I have no clue. But I think that's part of the 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 task for the next decade. Okay, sounds like I watched this space and and uh, so a, a, a kind of strategic call to conservative evangelicals to just be patient yeah and let i think that's right win the day for them which will put the uh, fear of god up the spine of anglo-catholics but uh if, well, hopefully. if like, you've been to a few anglo-catholic parishes uh they have a serious serious demographic yes and and uh, i have many anglo-catholic friends and, and numbers of those are conservative and i, I, I don't wish i don't wish them to any you know i don't i don't want to sound uh too belligerent there. I think the belligerence is very unhelpful. We could speak in a different way. Yeah, and I and I also have uh, plenty of Anglo-Catholic friends, and and the smart ones recognise that that Anglo-Catholicism as a as a kind of church within a church has some issues and needs to reform and revitalise. But we can't 
solve that issue or all of the issues of the world. Michael, you've been generous with your time. I know you've got to run to another appointment. I'll have to reserve some questions I'd love to unpack with you, but I have really enjoyed what we did unpack and want to thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Jonathan. It's been uh, great to catch up. I think we met as kids. Uh, so it's been great to – you look no different than then. Uh, but oh, been, nor do you, Michael. Thank yeah. you, thank you. And um, <laughs> you can say that on a podcast, can't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, but thank you for the time and for the, the, the chance to give some kind of account. And just before I go and let Michael go, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and or Spotify. I always say Spotify, you know what I mean. Subscribe and follow if you haven't. Thanks to my producer, Angelo Groza, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>